0: Revelation chapter one a launch to this whole chapter because it's just that good. This is as good as prose gets uh, in the New Testament, I think. Uh, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the last seven plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And He carried me away in the Spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and at the gates 12 angels. And on the gates the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And then he goes on and measures it. and goes down to verse 18. The wall was built of jasper while the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper. The second... Sapphire and agate, emerald, onyx, carnelian, uh, chrysolite, whatever that is, beryl and topaz, chrysophrase and jacinth and amethyst. And the twelve gates of the, were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for the temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city had no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the light. By its light will nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it and its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. That just gives you chill bumps. Reading some of that stuff is so good. I wonder how many of you know what a a taboo is. Um, a taboo is something that a culture decides that we're just not going to talk about openly. That's a hush-hush topic. And it used to be, back in the day, that these things were primarily sexual in nature. Uh, there was a day that if you sort of brought up the topic of homosexuality, people would sort of speak in hushed tones. Those days, as you know, are over. Uh, there is, I can sit with a group of college students and bring up just about any sort of question in the sexual realm and have a quick, immediate conversation going uh, without question. However, D.A. Carson, who is a commentator on the book of Revelation that I enjoyed very much, suggested that there is now a new uh, taboo. The last taboo of this next generation, he said, is death. In other words, he said, I can sort of come and speak about sexual dysfunction until the cows come home and never miss a beat. But the second that I say, you know, let me tell you how my brother died of cancer last year. Or let me tell you about the time that I lost my sister in a deadly uh, driving accident. You could cut the knife with, we cut the air with a knife. It's so awkward, the idea of death. Carson tells a story of a much beloved woman in his church who was dying of cancer. And at one point during the prayer meeting, Uh, that that his church had held for her eventual healing. Uh, His wife happened to pray, but Lord, if she is to die, then let her die well. And Carson talked about how offended the people in in the Bible study were that she would pray such a prayer. They were horrified by it. But you know, it's funny, if you go back into sort of the Reformation heritage in which this church stands, you'll find that they talked about death a lot, largely because it was so close to them. In our world, death has become a very antiseptic experience. Most of the things that happen are immediately turned over to the professionals. We don't see things until they're after prepared. It's a very antiseptic experience. But I think the question that D.A. Carson's wife brings up is a good one. How do I die well? If that's morose to you, then you need to read Book of Revelation because it's a far more cheerful topic than it might sound. Um, Because the Bible gives us a version of the ultimate destiny of those who die in Christ in the book of Revelation, especially at the end. But what I want to tell you, what I want to try to sit in front of you today is that understanding how God says you will finish can be transformational for you in the now, okay? This is not just something to sort of store away and like hold back there sometime. It actually is something that is for today, Look, the doctrine of glorification will help you in the way in which a good golf coach will, all right? Now, those of you who have ever played golf with me know that it's a little silly that I'm using a golf illustration as if I'm a golfer. People say, oh, are you a golfer? I play golf. I would not say that I'm a golfer. But I love to go out and ruin a walk um, by (laughs) golfing. Um, But after sort of working with you, and I've had coaches sort of try to deal with my incredibly awkward swing, uh, after working with you on your take back and sort of your, your follow through or sort of your, 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 your swing, it may be sometimes that they'll find some help by telling you where that club should end up, okay? Which is why I chose this fellow right here. He's interested in knowing where his club finishes. Sometimes if you think about where you would like the club to end up, it'll correct some of the things in your take back and your follow through. Um, and I've seen this sort of happen in the human realm as well. There's times in which... Um, Uh, When a young man gets engaged, this is a beautiful moment. When a young college student gets engaged to a girl and suddenly the weight of the world begins to sort of move in on him, because for the first time he begins to think about his future (laughs) in a way which he never did before, and there's this remarkable transformation that'll happen to him when he suddenly gets a vision of his destiny, right? Um, (laughs) Never mind whether that's a joyful destiny or a difficult destiny, but he sees it, right? Right? But look, that is a great illustration for how God deals with his people because the primary image that John uses throughout the book of Revelation to describe this sort of aspect of our salvation as it finishes is a bride, a bride who is adorned for her husband Jesus. And so what I want to look at this morning are three things. First of all, the bride's new location. Where does she live? Secondly, the bride's new look. What's changed about her, right? Right? And then finally, the bride's new life. You see, those all started with the letter L. Preacher tricks just come out from the dozens here. Um, Look, the bride's new location. This is really important to jump into. Um, Look, verse 8 gives us a glimpse into the kind of place in which we will live. And there are two things that need to be emphasized as we dive into this. First, what the text is suggesting is that heaven is not a place That is up in the sky. If there is any sort of effort that we need to make to crush out of the the, the sort of accoutrements that have been attached to our view of heaven, heaven is not up in the sky. Verse 2 says that the new heavens and the new earth are coming down. This is very important. Heaven is coming to us. This is what Scotty Smith says in his wonderful little. um, Uh, uh, commentary on the book of Revelation. says, It is more accurate to say that heaven is going to come to us rather than to say that we are going to heaven. According to the scriptures, our eternal celebration is not going to take place somewhere up in the clouds, but rather right here in God's world, which will totally be remade and renewed. Look, there is a heresy that can creep into the church and sometimes can even creep into our minds where we make an unnatural separation between the spiritual part of your life and existence and the physical part of your life and existence. Most of our images of heaven are of sort of dis- disembodied spirits sort of wafting throughout you know, eternity or something, right? And I know that we believe this because of the most persistent question that I've gotten from young people for 23 years about heaven. And you know what it is? Will we know each other in heaven? Now, why would that be the most persistent question? I got that all the time. I mean, will we know each other in heaven? What's the idea? Because they assume that we're just kind of misty, you know, apparitions, you know, with no real form, you know, kind of wafting throughout eternity in, in, in the future. But no, the Bible actually says that heaven is going to be a real place with a real earth. Uh, 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 One of our Old Testament professors, uh, uh, Richard Pratt, used to say that there is nothing in the Bible to suggest that our experience there in heaven will not be continuous. Now he uses his words carefully. Continuous with the world that we have now. Now granted, it'll be remarkably new. Is there anyone here who can imagine what we will do with the physical earth when we are not clouded by the problems of sin? Uh, Probably not. That that makes it unimaginable and completely different. But that doesn't mean that the good things that God created and pronounced in Genesis chapter 1 as being good, trees are good, plants are good, ground is good, sky is good, are going to somehow sort of disappear. It's a continuous experience with what we have here. Um, uh, This is what uh, we have from... um, Uh, Yeah, what will we do in heaven? That was the, will we know each other? This is one of my favorite quotes by Eugene Peterson on his great little quote, uh, Reversed Thunder, commentary on on Revelation, where he says, Heaven is not remote, either in time or space, but immediate. Heaven is not what we wait for until the rapture or where we go when we die, but what is barely out of the range of our senses, but brought to our senses by St. John's visions. We are now able to look upon the events around us not as a hopeless morass of pagan deception and human misery, but as the birth pangs of a new creation and a beckoning to participate in God's remaking of God's creation. What's he saying? What he's saying is heaven is God's space among us. Now look. You know, I, she's right here, so I'll, I'll pick on Anna Grace for a second. You, ever, you, you know, I'm not supposed to use my children as illustrations, but I'll never forget when she was really little. We were sitting around the table, and um, I remember her asking the question, "You know, Daddy, where is God?" And I was like, "Well, sweetie, God is everywhere." And I'll never forget. She was sitting in her high chair. She just went, <laughs> "Maybe I missed him. Where is he? Somewhere, somewhere near, right?" Well, that's a beautiful question because, but, but I tell you, once you start reading about how. The Bible actually speaks about heaven. You realize that there is a place where God dwells among us. But what has happened is it is we who have had our eyes shut. We are the ones who are under the judgment of God because we're not able to see him as he is among us. And it's probably for our protection, quite frankly. But it's not that he has removed himself. Heaven is 10 zillion light years away. As Stevie Wonder nicely reminded us back in the 70s, right? No, he's here among us. But in the same breath, God says that even though, um, even though the new heavens and new earth will in fact be an earth, it'll be totally new. Verse 5 suggests that there is something eternally new in the character of God. I love this. I, I read an article one time about the, the newness of God. Um, you know, yes, he is the ancient of days. He's been around since the very beginning. But he is the God who is making everything new. It's all new. He's something, it's part of his nature to renew everything. That's what he does. And that means he never gets old. Uh, You know, we have a culture that is obsessed. I mean, come on. We're obsessed with the kinds of shows of denying age. Do we not? I mean, how much money, how much of our resources are spent in making sure that we set our age off at a distance? We try to hide it. We try to cover it. We try to drape it in better clothes. We have a culture that's obsessed with that. And we can look at that and say, oh, everybody's gotten so materialistic, they're going to hell in a handbasket. Yes. But you know what? It might also be a memory trace that there's something of the image of God still imprinted on the human heart that tells you that maybe one of the reasons why we long for things to be new is because we remember that in the image of God, he is the God who makes everything new. Our aging and our decaying is not Natural. It is not the way in which God intended it to be. Everything was supposed to get newer. Everything was supposed to get better. Everything is supposed to renew. And one day it will. One day it will. Everything starts to work backward. So that's the bride's new location. We'll be in heaven. But don't have wrong views of that. Secondly, the bride's new look. All right, now this one is the bulk of the passage that we talked about. There's even more in chapter 22 that I'll let you read later and I'll mention even today. But that's the bulk of this passage is talking about our new look. And there is a huge mistake that people make and everybody's about to freak out here, so just bear with me for a second. Um, The descriptions given in these verses are often mistaken as being a city that we are going to inhabit. I want to make a pitch to you that actually that's not what they are, that rather they are symbolic pictures of what we will look like. Okay? of what we will look like. Bear with me for just a second. Uh, Again, Scotty Smith's commentary says, all my life, I thought that we Christians would be spending eternity walking on streets of gold, having gone through pearly white gates into the eternal city whose cubicle walls are made of all kinds of precious jewels. Now I find out when reading chapter 21 that we, the wife of Jesus, are the city. Look at what the verses say. And I think honestly, exegetically, this view wins this conversation. Look at verse nine. The angel comes and says to the person, come, I will show you the bride. That's the invitation. Come, I will show you the bride. And then in the very next verse, he says, he carried me away and showed me the holy city. Did you get that? The bride is the city. The bride is the city. Now look, gentlemen, gentlemen, I am hoping, I am trusting, that in your most rapturous moments of affection for your spouse, you did not look at her and say, my darling, you've never been more beautiful. You look like a city. (laughs) Or maybe you have, and that's where it all went wrong. I don't know. But look, I want you to notice for a moment that there are some, if you take it that way, this passage becomes that much more beautiful. Notice what it says. First of all, there is beauty in the precious stones. Verse 11 says that the city is radiant. She's beautiful. Verse 18 through 21 show us that the names of the stones that appear in the, are the same stones that appear in the ephod that uh, that Aaron wore around his his chest. Remember this, that Aaron was the high priest in the Old Testament, and he had this suit that he wore uh, that was very specific, and God was very specific. And there was a little metal plate that he wore over his chest that had 12 precious stones. Those are the same stones that are here listed almost exactly in Revelation 21. Look, what this means then, this is beautiful. At the moment your spirit leaves you in death, of all the things that we know about that are mysterious to us, we know that it's mysterious, the one thing that's true is you will be immediately cloaked in unimaginable beauty, that you will be altogether lovely at that very moment. Um, I remember um, one of the first times that I actually openly cried during a sermon was when the guy who preceded me uh, uh, at Ole Miss, a guy named Jeffrey Lancaster, he's a church planner in Memphis right now. Um, uh, Jeffrey uh, used to tell a story about Little Lucy, who actually attended this church for while she was here in school the last four years. Little Lucy kind of coming up to her and kind of climbing on his lap and getting a little bit affectionate and sort of cuddling back when your daughters were that age when they would do as much. And she sat up there one time and kind of in his lap and she said, Daddy, is I pretty? And Jeffrey was like, oh, you sure are, sweetie. And his illustration was basically this. He goes, is there not a little something inside of every single human being that has that wonder where you're like, daddy, is I pretty? (laughs) And the whole point of the book of Revelation is God will one day make that to be yes. And it'll be evident to all. There'll be something of glory that's there. And the fact that he compares it to a gem is just perfect for this series. That's one of those moments where you're like, that'll preach. Second thing that we find is not only beauty, but we find security in the walls. Good grief. People would go, what about the detail in this walls? Well, bear with me. Look at this. If you tried to calculate these in physical terms, you would find how absurd it would be to actually assume this is a real physical place. The city actually, if you added up all the cubits and the size and the measuring rod, would actually stand about 1,365 miles high. And long and wide. That's how large it would be. Uh, Dennis Johnson has got a commentary called The a Triumph of the Lamb in Revelation where he says this As for height, the top of a city wall standing 1,365 miles above the earth would extend into the orbit path of some man made satellites. These measurements, however, are not to be understood as physical data, but, listen to this, as enhancing the vision's imagery concerning the church's immensity and security (laughs) Ah, look on that day what john is saying is the church will be a mighty mass of people in other words at your death you do not go to be alone i don't think we remind ourselves of that as much as we should is that whatever journey that we have to cross that i know for many of us who have thought about this and the older that you get like this becomes more pressing okay i'm getting in trouble for this but i'm gonna say it anyway okay So we're going going on this one. Just bear with me. All the elders are going. (laughs) Here we go. Um, What letter am I going to have to write this week? There's a pastor friend of mine who um, uh, ministered in a very small town, Mississippi, and was speaking to an elderly gentleman in his congregation who was just older. And um, at one point, they were talking about their life and how things were going, and he made some passing, very vague reference to his own death. And my pastor friend, who was obviously much younger at that time, looked at him and said, you know, that seems like... I guess that's on your mind a good bit, isn't it? And he said, this elderly gentleman leaned over and he said, young man, he goes, I think about death as much as you think about sex. (laughs) And my pastor friend member's going, oh. (laughs) How jarring. (laughs) But I will say this, when you begin to contemplate that idea, who knows what thoughts rush into your mind? What John is saying is, is we got to know that even though the 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 step of that moment of going over into that other world is one that we all have to take by ourselves the the destiny on the other side is not to be alone that it comes in the mass of all of God's people gathered but more importantly there in that place you are safe as a kitten In that place, he is describing, this is what what, what Johnson says, John is not describing an eternally secure place. He is describing an eternally secure peoples. In other words, I think deep in the heart of everyone, there is a faint desire to know that not only is all well, but that all is going to be well. Doesn't that ruin all of your joys? (laughs) The thought that it's going to be temporary? I mean, you can go and take a walk on a couple of days like we had at the end of this week and think, good grief, this is so beautiful. The sky's never been bluer. Look at the clouds and the temperature's perfect. But you know what? There's a cold front coming. The weatherman ruined it for us. Every joy that you grasp at seems to just kind of slip through your fingers. But these walls are saying, (laughs) the beauty in there is contained. It's not slipping. It's not always uh, going out of us. We will all be safe in the husband arms of Jesus. Finally, there is satisfaction in the comfort, deep satisfaction, no more longing, no more wishing. All of her hurts in that place have been healed as she drinks from the water of the river of life and as she applies the balm of the trees, which are given, it says in verse chapter 22, for the healing of the nations. I love that. That even in Revelation, there's a talk of a tree that grows where there will be healing, the healing of the nations, and the fruit that comes there harvests every month symbolizes the fact that there will never be a time in which our joys come up empty in that place. Um, I was talking to a friend of mine. Um, well, I'll go ahead and mention him because he's just that great. Uh, Kevin Teasley uh, is uh, serves now as the uh, the um, uh, the uh, development officer, our sort of chief development officer of Reform University uh, Fellowship, and Kevin is just a great guy. He describes himself as, I'm just forest-gumping my way through my life, um, which is wonderful. Um, But Kevin uh, tells a story about his first hole-in-one. Again, it's all golf illustrations today, so bear with me. Um, You know, you you lean back and you sort of swing. You've been doing this thousands and thousands of times. And finally, that little ball drops into the cup for your first hole-in-one. And what he said was, is the strangest thing that happened that night was he found himself kind of walking around his house sort of restless, Because he'd already told everybody he could tell, you know. He (laughs) screamed everything he could, sent out emails, did whatever else, was just sort of racing around. But he said there was this little sort of distant little voice that was kind of like, what next? Because once you reach that pinnacle, and is this not what everyone says? Many of you have not reached that pinnacle. You're still pining. But is there not that moment once you reach that pinnacle where you're married you've got 3.2 children in a house in the suburbs that you look around and you're like, is this all there is? That's the saddest song, isn't it? Isn't that the saddest song for the people who actually got their dreams? Suddenly you realize it's not enough. You know what? It's never enough. I, I watch the Olympics for this very reason. I wanna listen to what they're saying when they put the gold medal on and the guy's got the microphone and they're saying, so tell us how it is. Oh, I, it's just, it's just, it's they stumble over it. In the back of my mind, I'm like, man, I would love to be with you tonight. For that little voice, which makes me a depressing person to be around, right? <laughs> <laughs> with that little voice, it comes in, it's like, hooray, it's not enough. It's never enough. C.S. Lewis used to talk about this sense of, of, of all of our earthly joys always feel distant from us. And Lewis talked about standing on the, on the brink of a great vista, a great view. Have you ever done this? You've been up in the mountains or you go to the Grand Canyon and you look at it and it's immense and it's so beautiful that you're just kind of like, I feel like I wish I could fly into it or something. Why? Because that's a desire to get in, he says. We know there's beauty out there and we know we were built for it, but there's just this chasm that always exists. When John describes the new heavens, the new Jerusalem, what he's talking about is the fact of actually getting in to beauty. That suddenly there's no distance between us and the joy of beauty. And here's the thing, I don't have any idea what that means, but it's awesome. <laughs> I can know that. And that's the way John sort of encourages us. Oh, the bride's new look. It's the best news you've heard all week. Finally, the bride's new life. A couple quick words on this and we'll have some time for questions. You know, John wants to prepare us sort of for our death by looking at what he says in chapter 22, which is so huge. The whole subject of chapter 22 gives us really this perfect overarching tie-in to this entire series. And that is that it focuses, especially if you look at chapter uh, chapter 21, verse 3, you'll see that the essence of heaven, the thing that makes heaven heavenly is the fact that it is to be with God. What is heaven going to be like? I don't know, but we'll be with him. That really is the ultimate answer to that question. In in chapter 21, 22, it mentions the fact that there's going to be no more temple. Now, that's very important. There's no temple there. Now, what that meant was the temple, mind you, in a Jewish person's mind, was the place where heaven and earth intersected. Okay? You went to where God was. You got the closest that you could get to his presence. And the temple, as it were, mediated... You know what I mean by mediate? It sort of mediated your experience of God. It had to because you were sinful. There were all these priests. There were all these rituals. Actually, there was only one person that could get back into the Holy of Holies, right? Where God really was. Nobody really actually got all the way in though into what they were really built to have, right? But what the Bible is saying is, is in that day, there's no more mediation. God's presence will be immediate, accessible. And even the dimensions of the city sort of screen this fact. Notice that the city dimensions are a perfect cube. Ah, now notice, there are actually some very important cubes in the Bible. The first one starts in the Garden of Eden. If you look at how the rivers are laid out in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, you'll find that the garden was in the shape of a perfect square. Later on, when God begins to tell his people to build a certain uh, uh, worship tent, a tabernacle, the very last room in the back, if you look at the dimensions of that place where the Ark of the Covenant rests, You ready for this? A perfect cube, same length, width, and height as every other place. What is John saying? He's saying that heaven is when the holy of holies becomes everything. That everything is the holy of holies. We're always there. He's always there. And by the way, there, there's no more sea. All those people who love a vacation at the beach are kind of like, oh, I kind of like the water. We've got a pontoon boat. Are we not going to be able to do that, you know? I mean, Sardis is awesome in the, in the summertime. Look, of course there'd be water in heaven. The sea to a Jewish person was not happy. It was a threatening thing. If you look at the images through the Psalms, you'll find that the sea was a bad place. It was where dark mysterious things came up and got you. It may make you read Jonah in a brand new way as well. But what they're saying is, is there's no dark places. <laughs> there's no scary spots, you know? There's no being nervous as you walk back to your car in the Walmart. Uh, As I had one young lady explain to me, she goes, I'm never not afraid when it's nighttime walking from Walmart front door to my car. Can you imagine? What if there are safe places out there? Look, this is the point. Heaven is what it is, not because there will be the cessation of pain, death, and sorrow, though it will certainly be all of that. Heaven is heavenly because he is there. Because he is there. (laughs) The fulfillment of mankind's personal destiny destiny, is to finally be with the Lord, caught up, like C.S. Lewis says, in this divine dance of Trinitarian joy and glory and mutuality, to be eternally swept up into everything wonderful that you ever dreamed but that you never thought could possibly exist. Um, Yeah, the perfect square, what is heavenly about heaven? In this last, this one, this one, I just couldn't, I couldn't resist this one. It's a perfect way to finish our series here. When C.S. Lewis in the end of the last battle uh, does this quote, you remember this one? The things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now, at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, and in which every chapter is better than the one before. My little little invitation to you is just, don't you know, don't you think, don't you believe that you were built for that? You had to be built for that because I can conceive of it. I know that that's the place of my destiny, which wraps up our series on the of Salutis. All right, I gave plenty of time for questions, like 15 minutes for questions. We can wrap up the whole series. We can talk about the book of Revelation, uh, other questions about things that go on when we die or whatever. Any thoughts or questions? Yes. Yeah, that's a good question. The question was, what, can we talk about the difference between what happens when we die and the second coming of Jesus when our bodies are resurrected? Yes, I'm very glad. I was actually gonna, hoping someone would ask that question. If you didn't, I was going to talk about it anyway. Um, there really is a great, uh, uh, there's a lot of work that has been done in the area of systematic theology for the last 2,000 years of church history into that great question, what exactly happens when I die? Where? do I, or whatever I, whatever I know of I, go, okay? Through the Middle Ages, uh, Roman Catholic theologians had begun to teach, and it still, I think, is doctrine of the church. I don't know that it's changed. I couldn't find any resources on uh, Roman Catholic, present Roman Catholic doctrine on the, on, uh, the dead. But for, for a long time, Roman Catholics taught that the soul at the moment of your death enters into a great sleep, Okay? That is, your sense of, of waking awareness of life just sort of goes to a blip, like you do when you go to sleep, which is really weird. Sleep is one of the odder things if you really start to think about it. If you think about it too much, you actually will not go to sleep. But, but there's this strange entry into a nether world of consciousness, but not consciousness. And it's a strange sort of thing. But what the Catholics had said was is that that is where one goes. It just sort of blips. And the very next thing that someone knows when they die is the resurrection of the body at the last day. Does that make sense? That is, one goes to sleep, stays asleep for however much longer God has to sort of play out human history. But in their experience, it is as if they are transported immediately to the future when they will receive their new body and they are raised in newness of life. Okay. That is the Roman Catholic teaching. When the Reformation rose up some 400 years ago, they began to take issue with that teaching, beginning with John Calvin. Calvin was the first one to say, the problem with that view is it makes many passages that we have in Scripture very problematic. For instance, one of the main ones is when Jesus is on the cross with the two thieves. Remember the conversation Jesus has with the two thieves while he's being crucified? You know, one of them is kind of like, you know, uh, you know if you're the Christ, you know, save Christ, save us and yourselves, you know, kind of taking shots at Jesus. The other guy looks and goes, hey, this guy's never done anything wrong. We deserve to be here. He's not done anything wrong. And Jesus sort of notices that confession and says, hey, look, let me tell you something for sure. Like this day, you will be with me in paradise. And Calvin's point was that language is a little too specific to suggest that like, you know, <laughs> This day, really thousands of years away from now, you'll be with me in paradise. It just doesn't fit. Does that make sense? Um, Another passage is where Paul is talking, boy, I lost this. Is this Philippians, Colossians? That it is better for me to depart and be with the Lord, right? He looks at himself as, as saying, it is better for me to depart and go and be with the Lord, that there's a sense in which at the moment of one's death that you are with the Lord. So, Where does this land us? I think it is better to think that for reformational teaching, at the time of our deaths, there is a sense of awareness and consciousness of number one, having been made perfect. Our thinking is clear for the first time ever without sin. Our, um, Our awareness is as keen as our mind has ever been able to be, but we are indeed disembodied souls. Now look, there is a whole lot of mystery around that. A whole lot of mystery where we don't know, like, what will that be like? I don't know. But because it's sinless and because it's being with him, there is some, there, there, there's consciousness there, there's awareness, and there's bliss there. And then what we long and wait for is for God to fill up the role of his elect for the four, for the four angels to be spread out to the four corners of the earth, like it says in Revelation, to gather God's elect. That happens, you know, over time that God is sort of extending into over and over again. And we have no idea when that's going to finish, when he has finished uh, uh, gathering his elect. At that moment, though, then, we know that when Jesus returns, he calls out our bodies from the dust, okay, and reunites them completely made brand new with our sources so that heaven is experienced out. Not in a disembodied state, but we will have that you can try and you will be able to eat, 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 and eat, and taste, taste. And we will have, we will have, a feel feel and, and have, have, experiences, experiences together, together, together doing eat. things. Riding, riding the time, the, pond, the truck, that truck, that truck, sea, the blessed, the blessed heavens, i i in heaven. Um, um I, I remember, remember riding, around with my, my old mentors, and, and you know, you know, having to be kind of, be a clodding, young, seminary, seminaries, doing sort of, sort of like a patology, really. You know, I'm just, I'm just sitting in What are those?
1: Um, my friend was saying, hey, I got, I
0: got to pull into this motorcycle shop because I'm looking for a certain part of my motorcycle. My friend, my friend owned at last count that I found out like 14 motorcycles. He was just a hobbyist. And I looked at him and I was like, you know, honestly, do you really think there's going to be motorcycles in heaven? <laughs> to which his response was, of course there will be. Why wouldn't there be? <laughs> well, I don't know. <laughs> I regret asking. <laughs> what was his point? The growth of technology is a good thing because it's, it's, at creation, God goes throughout all the, uh, the, the, the creation and he, and he, he invests it with all manner of resources that we are given in our lifetimes to mine, M-I-N-E, mine, to find out what those resources, to see what's produced from them. Technology is a wonderful thing. Is it misused? Yes. But don't become a, don't, become a, don't baptize your Luddism. You know, the Luddites were this old English cult that thought any manner of technology is bad. Yeah, that's the Amish sort of idea, you know, where you have moral arguments over the, over the, <laughs> over the zipper, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Can we do this really? Um, but the point is this. All of, these, all of these things are good. We'll be reunited with our bodies to have an eternal experience in a renewed body. That is the reformational teaching of how our bodies are united back to our souls. To the biggest piece of mystery there is, though, the, um, uh, is the question of, uh, of that disembodied state. Stuart's about to correct me because he is a seminary student. I'm so excited that today we have the RUF campus minister from the University of Alabama in Tuscaloosa, Stuart Swain, and his lovely wife Mary Cannon with us. And Stuart's got a question. Don't you stump me and make me look bad? Uh, That's exactly. (laughs) That's exactly right. (laughs) That's exactly right. Come on, if you stump me, then you're fired. But go ahead. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Don't even start. Don't even start! How dare you? That's right. That's right. That's right. That's right. Yes. Meredith Sanford is is works at the Alabama Center. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good question. If heaven is 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 um, is God's space among us. Does that world not press in on our world? I think absolutely it does. My favorite sort of version of this is from, uh, it's from Revelation 3, where Jesus says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. Which, you know, I grew up sort of with this image of Jesus, sort of like, you know, gentle Jesus, you know, gently rapping at the door of our hearts. Oh, please, oh, please, oh, please. I hope that he opens up his heart to let me in. <laughs> I don't know where you got that Jesus, but he's like, not in the Bible, like, no, when, what you find out the door that Jesus is looking at comes in chapter four, where, where John gets to go through the door. And you know what he sees? He sees the world as it really is. And there's one thing he sees there, the throne. Everything is worshiping in that place. There's all these 24 elders, there's these four living creatures that are all mysterious. Imagery that's basically saying that just behind the veil of our ability to see is a worshiping community. And one of the points that you make is now we know what Jesus' knocking is. His knocking is that world pushing in on this world. You know what I'm saying? Because we all have instincts to worship, do we not? But the problem is, is we exchange the glory of the creator for created things, from Romans chapter one. And we worship the creature rather than the creator. That's how it's become warped. And so what Stuart is saying is, is for that reason, heaven sort of, it muscles in, You want to know how it's muscling in? By when all of a sudden those idols that you've set up, that you grasped at, if only I could be married, if only I could have children, if only I could get that job, if only I could retire at a good age, if only I could make that money, all of those idols are going to fail you. That's heaven pushing in. And likewise, the emptiness of those things are indeed can be very hellish. It's not just emptiness that comes up, but they can actually be devoid of goodness and actually present in real physical torment and suffering. So even hell is itself pushing its way forward because for those who are outside of Christ, that moment of sort of blinking and sort of wafting out of existence is then accompanied by an absolute loneliness, by an absolute isolation, by an absolute separation that the Bible can only describe as an eternal torment of flame and fire. So I mean there's a dramatic nature there where all of a sudden we can feel heaven and hell pressing in on our lives at any given time. That sort of helps to, it's very interesting. It can be a, a helpful way to have how the Bible looks at my struggles. You know? There are heavenly struggles and there are hellish struggles, no doubt. That's a good question. Stuart just teed me up for that one. Yes, sir. When we're about our bodies, is there anything the scripture says for age like that's right. I don't know what is it going to be. Um, so here is what we here's the closest we have to that answer. Over and over again in the New Testament, we get these um, we get these assurances that our body that the best example that we have for what it will be like in that side is Jesus. That he was the first fruits of those who would be raised from the dead. Does that make sense? So if we're looking for the closest analogy that we can have, we will see that it's Jesus. Now, here's the problem with that. There is a sense in which Jesus was not recognized by some of his followers. You know, the whole road to Emmaus thing, it takes them a while until Jesus opens their eyes. But then there's just as many times in which they absolutely knew it was him. You know, know, Peter sees that it's the Lord from a ways out while he's fishing and jumps in the water and swims up. So he does recognize him. We also know that that body was physical because he's invited, Jesus invites Thomas to be like, you know, you were looking for something to put inside? Come on, it's right here. I'll show you the scar, which is another weird thing. It's like, are there scars in my body? Am I gonna have, look, the answer is, I don't know. (laughs) That's a great thing to go is like, I don't know. Um, But I do know that one, I do think that the decay has to be reversed. And it may be that what I end up looking like at that time is what would have happened to my body, continuous with the one that he gave me, but without the decay. That's what I'm, re- I look and go, when did, my <laughs> when did my body start to die? You know, I think you're younger, you're kind of like, oh, I'm growing, I'm growing. How high am I, daddy? You know, you measure the thing on the wall and then all of a sudden some of that corner turns and it sneaks up on you, right? And you're being like, wow, things are not like working. <laughs> like, right. How does it happen? I don't know. How does he reverse that? Um, I don't know. I have no idea, but it'll be awesome. Again, look, look, stick with Jesus' example and see if that doesn't satisfy us as much. I my hair back. <laughs> that's right, that's right. I get my hair. Are my ears gonna be this big in heaven, really? I don't like my nose. I've always got a big nose. I'm gonna fix that. I'll start planning out our heavenly body. Any other questions? Hey, well, let me, oh, the so the other our, goodness gracious, I was about to cut this one down. Clayton, why don't you go? Yeah, yeah. I, the question was, when you read the book of Revelation, do you ever have a sense of, of dread because it's final judgment for so many? Um, I know that that was the only way it was ever presented to me growing up. I began this series three months ago by talking about my own journey uh, through the evangelical subculture, uh, and I know that when I grew up, like, Revelation was terrifying. First of all, it was completely incomprehensible to any layperson. That's why you had to have the experts know it. And so it was like, you got through, you got from Genesis to Jude, fine, but Revelation, all bets were off, whatever. We did a series through Revelation at old Miss. I got the best compliment I've ever gotten on a series when a student came and and goes, you know, you put Revelation back in the Bible for me. Because it was always like, well, I don't know what all that's about. It really should be about what the rest of the Bible is about. It should. Now, I do think there's truth in what you're saying that what, the, what Revelation does is, is it, it actually, it, it, it ensures the linear nature of time, okay? There are many cultures and philosophies that will teach that time is circular. You know what? We're just going around and around and around. And a little bit of truth in that. There's a repetitiveness sometimes to the, to the trends that come. And the book of Revelation actually shows some of that. I would argue that the bulk of the book of Revelation in the, the, um, the seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, and the bowl judgments are actually renditions or depictions of human history as it cycles through time after time of people rising up to oppose the Lamb and then the overcomers uh, uh, actually uh, defeating them. And that's a good way to look at human history. But what the end of Revelation says, though, is no, there actually is a telos. There's an end. There's a place we're going to where God is going to stop it all and fix it all. And th- there's a sense of that linearity that's good That's good Christian worldview, Okay. But also, this is my only, only answer to that question. The book of Revelation does not necessarily see itself as only that way. In any study that I've done through that book that's been worthwhile, it has been that John is trying to keep something beautiful and glorious and excited. And if I stop for a moment and I'm arrested by the thought of, oh, gosh, that kind of terrifies me a little bit, then I want to go back to first things, you know. So what standing will I have? Right, what uh, what, uh, what will I appeal to when I stand before him in that day? What will be my case? And if all of a sudden I start to do a mental survey of how well I did that month, <laughs> or what kind of good Christian I've been that week, you're probably gonna be depressed and terrified at that thought. But that's true all the time, isn't it? In the temptation always to view our salvation as ultimately being on my shoulders, the book of Revelation is coming in and saying, man, no, just on, just on the other side of our senses, right here, heaven. <laughs> God's space among us, there's a worshiping community that's pressing in and he's created a salvation that's great. So yeah, if it terrifies me, that wasn't John's point. That, that's how I would respond to that. All right, Can, is it quick? Go ahead, Susan, give me a quick one. So what if I'm here and I well, What if I'm going, okay, the <laughs> yeah. Right. I think that's part of it. Yeah. I th- this is this is where okay. You're asking you're asking a, a homiletical question for me, which is how does one teach about that? Again, the the linchpin I was trying to get you to this morning was that our experience in heaven should be continuous with what we have now. And so therefore, there ought to be a sense of my experience now of heavenliness and hellishness that instruct me about that. For instance, I I may not know those images are like, "Mm, still doesn't sound very cool. Okay, we're going to be a city. What? What was he saying? I'm a city. But the security, though, I know what it's like to feel unsafe. I know what it's like to drive home, having having thinking to yourself, my job may be in danger. I I might get fired. What would I do if I got fired? What would I do? Where would I go? What kind of life would I build for myself? That, well, you know what that is? That's insecurity. That's fear. That's an anxiety attack. What I can do is then say, in heaven, there's the absence of that. that. That is bad. I don't want that. And so there's a sense in which I can connect with that very experience. And then secondly, that's a negative example. There are moments in which I am just about to pop. I'm so overjoyed. You know, My mom has done this in the last couple of years. That whenever we come over for Thanksgiving or Christmas... She just can hardly sit still. She's just like, ah, she's got all of her grandbabies there, and she's about to have a a great grandbaby there, you know, this next Christmas, Lord willing. Um, And she's just sort of just shifting. And I want to say, why? Because she's overjoyed at the thought of having her family with her and having a tangible experience of having someone with her. And I can be like, ah, you like that? (laughs) Because the streams on earth I've tasted more deep I'll drink above. There to an ocean fullness his mercy doth expand. And glory, glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. Can we sing that this morning? Can y'all change the whole song stuff? I'm looking for wherever. Anyway, so connect my present experience is what I would say to that. Okay, let me close in prayer and uh, say thank you for it. Lord Jesus, thank you for uh, the time that you have given us together. We thank you for these great and glorious things. You've not left us to ourselves. You've not abandoned us even though it often feels that way that you've given us real delights and real joys. We're going to eat real food uh, for lunch today. We're going to experience real goodness and love of loved ones that, 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 that are tangible and, and will never end. They'll never end because of what you've done innocent for us. Lord Jesus, if you would give us a great vision of that, we think that we might change. We would grow. We would be transformed if we got a real vision of that. Would you do that so that by your spirit as we worship now, that we would participate with that heavenly world that's all around us. We've never been closer to heaven than we will be in the next hour. So let us experience that and feel a sense of your spirit and your comfort and your joy that you're there. Would you do that? Yes,